relax, you got nothing to lose. What do you think I'm about to show you? The female of the species is more deadly than a male. Show me your movie, you can say it again. Just wait till you see what I did at the end. The female of the species is more deadly than a male. Hello, everyone, and welcome to More Deadly, the Director's Cut, where we speak with the women-identified filmmakers who are making the horror movies we love so, so much. More Deadly is a trans-inclusive podcast where we celebrate the work of cis and trans women, as well as non-binary filmmakers who are comfortable being included in a space that centers the work of women. Joining me this evening to get into a movie that we have been dying to talk about forever ever since it was announced is my beloved ariel hello hey girl how are you i'm good i'm so excited to be doing this today yeah this one was kind of a dream episode for me you too oh yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) like one of those interviews that you kind of it's like a pie in the sky kind of thing you don't expect to actually materialize so yeah yeah, I mean, it's like one of my all-time favorite mm-hmm. screenwriters and now one of my all-time favorite film like directors <laughs> yeah. in one day. Like, it, we woke up so early. And I it know. Was so <laughs> worth it. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> so normally I know we like to chit-chat and we like to talk about all the spooky doings and weird doings in your apartment, but mm-hmm. I feel like this one we just want to get right into. Oh, what do yeah. you think? Yeah, let's do it. Let's okay. talk about it. Okay, okay. So we're, let's stop beating around the bush. Folks, we have an amazing show for you this week. We got to sit down and chat with the amazing Zelda Williams and Diablo Cody to discuss their new film, Lisa Frankenstein. Yay! Yes, yes. So this one (laughs) is brand new. It is just in theater. So we got to talk about how we're going to handle spoilers. Ariel, for those people who are here for the first time and they're nervous, like, what is this going to do? Am I going to ruin this movie for myself? How do we handle spoilers on on this, this version of the show? Yeah, so on More Deadly Director's Cut, we do things a little bit differently. We are going to try our very best to avoid all spoilers. We're just going to talk about things in slightly more general terms. And uh, hopefully that means you'll be safe to listen to the whole thing. I think in the interview, they stay away from spoilers, too. So I think you should be good. But also go see this in theaters and support these (laughs) filmmakers because it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think they definitely get into a couple of plot points. And one of them in particular is late in the film. But I guess that's true. It's not. But I would not say that they share a line of dialogue um, as opposed to like a major plot point. Point, but I think you're probably okay. I don't know. Depends <laughs> yeah. on how, how how nervous you are. Either way, this is an episode that you, if you don't listen to it now, you better bookmark it and come back because we have a fantastic conversation. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the filmmakers and a little bit about the filmmaking. And then Ariel, you're going to share a synopsis of the film. We'll give our non-spoilery thoughts and then it's interview time. Sound good? Yep. Let's do it. All right, cool. So bear with me. This is a double, so I've hit a 
a lot of background on this. Good, one. I'm excited. So, and I'm losing my voice a little bit. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> It's going to be gone by the end. (laughs) The things we do for love. All right. So I'm going to start with our director, Zelda Williams. So she is an American actor, writer, producer, and like I said, director. She grew up here. She's a local girly. She grew up in San Francisco, although she has now moved to Los Angeles, I guess, because, you know, she's going to be a filmmaker or whatever. (laughs) But she's also an out and proud bisexual, and we love that for her. Um, As for how she got her unique name, some may assume that it would be after Zelda Fitzgerald, but no, she was named after the video game character. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. I had no idea. Apparently, her parents were playing a lot of Zelda when she was like when they were pregnant with her. That's funny. And she's a princess. Uh You know, it just kind of made sense, right? (laughs) As a kid, she was not into it, but... And she wanted to change it. But as she got older and she over the years, she eventually kind of really came to appreciate it and understand sort of the reason behind it. And I think she's a unique individual and having a unique name like Zelda just kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, I I have a name that I hated when I was a kid because although I wasn't named after a cartoon character, everybody thought I was. Yeah. Um, But I came to love it as I got older. Yeah, I got teased a lot for my middle name, and I had a, like a, to this day I still feel a little weird about it. Like when people see it for the first, uh-huh. first time, <laughs> it's so weird how like those childhood things. I know. So, like who gives a shit? Yeah, but it but sticks with you. Yeah, it's just like the neural pathways have been set. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of names, uh, if her last name sounds familiar, it's because she is yes that Williams. She is the daughter of beloved actor and comedian Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, that meant that she had kind of a unique childhood growing up, which included visiting movie sets and hanging around celebrities at a very young age. This experience inspired her um, to, you know, follow in her father's footsteps and go into the film industry. Uh, Her earliest aspirations were actually to be an actor, and she did a lot of acting. So in an interview with Entertainment Tonight, she kind of recalled this, saying, I was fascinated by it early specifically about going to work with her father. When you're that young, you don't grasp that it's a job, really. It's just something fun that you get to go and visit. And then she recalled the time that she actually went to the set of the 1999 sci-fi film Bicentennial Man. Oh, and how uh-huh. Yes, and how beautiful the sets was. And that, like, sort of clicked something for her. She said that was when she was old enough to really understand that there was a whole bunch of jobs that you could also do. And that sort of set her on her career path. Oh, that's so cool. God, it must have been such a dream to get to go to all these sets growing up. I mean, I think, yeah, she had an interesting childhood. And yeah. when you have an interesting childhood, you become an interesting person. Mm-hmm. And I think Absolutely. you really see that here. So it's as for when she got started, it was very early. And there are conflicting stories about what her first role was. But her, I'm going to go with what IMDb says. IMDb is God today. Okay. Um, <laughs> and according to IMDb, her first film role was in the film Nine Months. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, that sounds familiar. Wait, it what has was like that Ju- one about? It has like Julianne Moore and... Right. Um, yeah, oh, wait, pl- was she like, she was like a little kid in that? Yeah, she played a little a ballerina in the class. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> so since then, she's gone on to star in a ton of things, including The House of D with her father. 
Um, and many of the things she did were actually in our favorite genre horror, including Don't Look Up, Detention, and Dead of Summer. She, yes, she also did some voice acting work. My favorite, of course, was The Legend of Korra, where she voiced Kuvira in the final season, and she was amazing. That's so cool. Yes, I love that show. Kuvira is definitely one of those, like, that show had very uneven villains, right? Like really good True. ones, underwhelming ones. And Kuvira is probably my favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was amazing. So while she had a very storied acting career, she's actually been moving more and more towards working behind the camera, particularly as a director in recent years, specifically following the passing of her father. She's open, been very open about sort of her grief and her struggles with depression since his passing, you know, And obviously, he also had struggles of his own. So she talked about how this impacted a shift in her career in an interview with Rolling Stone saying, I started transitioning towards wanting to direct and wanting to leave behind acting uh, around when dad died. Being behind the camera became a much less self-conscious place than being in front of it. For some people, I reminded them of him and made them sad. Or I was just never going to live up to him and it made them angry or they didn't believe I should be there. In either case, none of those things are about me. They shouldn't concern me, but I'm human and it was really tough, which is heartbreaking. That is so heartbreaking. I can't imagine how hard that would be, like Mm -hmm. having to grieve your father, but then also trying to stick with this career path that you were on and having everybody judge you so harshly. Well, I mean, I the world imagine. has this parasocial relationship oh, with her yeah. father. You know what I mean? And I, it never really occurred to me the weight of what that would be like as someone in the public eye yeah. with some with with a family member that people feel so fucking connected to. Because, I mean, he is certainly an actor that people feel very, very passionately and mm-hmm. lovingly towards. So I, I thought that was heartbreaking, but also really interesting. And so, like, so, like, generous and vulnerable of her to, sh- to open up and share that. So, I mean, like I said, the shift happened and immediately following his passing, she went into, she essentially kind of like one of the ways she was dealing with her grief was to go into overdrive writing scripts and she really started moving into directing. She did some music videos, including JoJo's Save My Soul in 2016, and she did a short film called Shrimp about dominatrixes, which sounds awesome, but we're going to put a pen in it for now because we'll be circling back to shrimp shortly. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It was also about then that she found herself a filmmaking mentor, someone who is definitely um, someone we appreciate, uh, a horror director that we have enjoyed, whose work we have enjoyed, and that is director Scott Derrickson. If that Mm -hmm. name doesn't sound familiar, he's the director of The Black Phone, Sinister, Exorcism of Emily Rose, and like a very weird guilty pleasure of mine, Hellraiser Inferno, because it's just so insane. (laughs) So One of the yeah. bonkers ones, huh? <laughs> he did something he normally doesn't do. He let Zelda shadow him while he was working on the Snowpiercer series. Oh, okay. And has like, he speaks like so glowingly of her. He heaps praise on her and her mind and her like encyclopedic knowledge of sci-fi and horror and basically called her like the hugest sci-fi and horror nerd, which to me, I mean, that's so exciting to me because it gives me so much hope that Lisa Frankenstein is not just like a jumping off point, but she's really going to spend some time in, in this genre and creating in this space. And I, 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 if this is just the beginning of what she does in horror and comedy and all of the, the, just the mashup of things that Lisa Frankenstein is, I cannot wait to see what she makes. Oh God, no kidding. 
Yeah. So along with being a writer and director and actor, Zelda is also a mental health advocate, as I mentioned, um, who has spoken openly, powerfully, and beautifully about her own struggles with depression and grief. Um, but the, you know, that has not held her back from doing really amazing things. She's still working. Obviously, this is the big thing at the moment. But next up, she is going to be stepping back in front of the camera for an upcoming horror movie called Don't Open the Door. Okay. I'm intrigued. Which I'm like, very <laughs> intrigued. Very intrigued. Okay. So as we said, we're going to be talking about two of the amazing women that worked on this film. So let's talk about the film's writer, Diablo Cody. So if you are here, if you are listening to the show, let's be <laughs> honest, you're probably already very familiar with Diablo's work because I feel like the Venn diagram of people who've listened to the show and who have loved Jennifer's body from Jump is pretty much a circle. Oh, yeah. uh, people of taste and sophistication. That is who comes to more deadly and that is who appreciates <laughs> Jennifer's body. But I'm still going to tell you about her. So hang in there. I actually learned a lot. Like I thought I knew a lot about her, but I, uh-huh. I learned a lot through this. Program. Oh, OK. I'm excited. So Diablo Cody is an American screenwriter, writer, blogger, journalist, and author. (laughs) She was born in Illinois and grew up in a suburb outside of Chicago. She attended the University of Iowa, where she earned her Bachelor of Arts in Media. And she first rose to prominence with a parody blog called Red Secretary. Have you ever heard about this? No. So it is the, like, it is a fictional blog, but okay. it's about this secretary living in Belarus and, like, okay. her exploits. That sounds <laughs> so, amazing. Yeah. So obviously that one was more fictional. But the next uh-huh. thing she did was actually the first thing she wrote under the name of Diablo Cody. That's actually not her birth name. That is a nom de plume that she made up from combining code the, the town of Cody, Wyoming, and a song, the song Del Diablo by Arcadia. Oh, interesting. I had no idea. I assumed that was her name. No, that is not. That is not her birth name. I don't know. I feel like she goes by Diablo Cody, so I don't want to like use her name. But I mean, sure. if you're really curious, it's on the Internet. You can Google it. It's on the Wikipedia. Okay. It's <laughs> very accessible. But in case she has abandoned that, I just don't even want to go there. So anyway, uh, it started off as a nom de plume that she used while writing her what would become like a huge hit blog called the pussy ranch where Mm -hmm. she wrote about her experiences working as a dancer. And then that eventually was transitioned into her, her memoir candy girl, a year in the life of an unlikely stripper that did really well. And she was encouraged like after the success of that blog and the success of the book that she should maybe try her hand at writing screen, like doing screenwriting, writing scripts. Turns out she was really, really good at it. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah. Her first script was for a little film called Juno about a pregnant teen starring Elliot Page and Michael Sarah that earned her an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. It just blows my mind because, <laughs> like, to have that be your first outing. I mean, I know she'd been writing for years and so had been, like, honing her craft. I get that. But screenwriting is a totally different beast. And yeah. That movie especially, and honestly, everything she writes, but that movie especially has such a specific tone. Yes. And such a specific style of dialogue Mm -hmm. that like, not in a deft hand would totally not work. And it works so well in Juno. It's crazy to me that that would be her first movie. Yeah. 
It's amazing. I still remember when she won that award. I hadn't Mm -hmm. seen the movie. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know who she was. But I remember her going on the stage to accept the award. And she had this leopard print dress on it. And I was like, I don't know who she is. But she (laughs) is amazing. I remember just thinking she was so cool. And I had, I, you know, I I don't know. I I don't remember what year that was. But I was like not tapped in to Academy Award winning movies. Gotcha. I mean, I'm still not really. Let's be like, <laughs> so I you like didn't see it things. like when it was first in the theater. Then no, I saw it after. Like okay. I saw it. I have seen it. I've since seen it. Yeah. But I remember just thinking, I don't know who she is, but she is so cool, and she stood out from like uh, all the celebrities that were there. All kinds, you know what I mean? It was like a yeah. listers, and oh, she yeah. was the one that I was like, "Who are you? You're amazing!" <laughs> like the it factor was so apparent. Yeah, I was kind of like mildly obsessed with that movie i saw it multiple times in the theater because i kept really? taking people to go see it yeah no way. i just thought the dialogue was so cool our friend mars mm-hmm. the first it was the first year i knew her we had we worked in an office together and we had a halloween party and she showed up and she was dressed as juno and it was perfect <laughs> she was such a good juno that's amazing <laughs> yeah I, I think i have pictures of it somewhere i should dig those up oh yeah i want to see that so all right back to diablo from From her Academy Award winning screenplay, she went on to create the Tony Collette starring Showtime series United States of Terra about a woman with DID who which ran for three seasons and was great. It was. I feel like that was when the world everybody figured out that Tony Collette was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I know that people, some like psychologists and stuff have some criticism over the depiction of like DID in that show. But the acting and the writing is so good in it. Absolutely. And I feel like that was actually also, didn't that also star, um, oh gosh, what is her name? Captain Marvel. Yeah. I think she was, that was the daughter, wasn't she? Yeah. I feel like that was the first thing I ever saw Brie Larson in. Yes. And I remember really thinking she was amazing too. Um, okay. So after that, she went on to write one of our all-time favorite films, Jennifer's Body, which was directed by Karen Kusama and starred Amanda Seyfried and Megan Fox and was beloved of people of taste and sophistication from the beginning and panned by misogynists. Everybody else. <laughs> misogynists. Yeah. Let's be oh, specific. Yeah. Let's talk about who they are. They are chauvinist garbo bog mm-hmm. foxes. Uh, thankfully, uh, it has gone on to be reevaluated and is finally getting the love that it deserves today because it is excellent and it should have always yeah, no kidding. It's kind of wild to see how that's happened, though, because it was so bizarre to watch it happen in real time where it was just getting panned left and right by these assholes when it was so good. It was so obviously a good movie Yeah. Uh, to the rest of us. And yeah. now to in the last couple of years, just to see people reevaluate it so much. I mean, it's great. I love that for Diablo Cody and Karen Kusama and all the actors involved. Like, it's amazing that people are seeing it in a different light. But it doesn't take that what they went no, through. No, it sure doesn't. Mm-mm. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, since then, I mean, it has not stopped her. She wrote the script for the Broadway musical Jagged Little Pill, which is obviously based around Alanis Morissette's right. story. Mm-hmm. She wrote the excellent young adult that included Patton Oswalt as a love interest, which I'm like, yeah, that's my jam right there. Nailed it. <laughs> She created the Tignataro starring series One Mississippi and seeming and 
something I did not know. This is something I thought was super, super interesting. Maybe you knew this. Okay. She's uncredited, but as Bruce Campbell himself explained, she did a pass on the Evil Dead movie <gasps> from 2013. What? Yes. I had no idea. Yes. So oh like her God. job was to go in and to like look at the characters and make sure they were realistic and yeah. punch up the dialogue and make that seem realistic. So and now that I know that, I'm like, oh, that's yeah, interesting. That makes you can feel a Diablo Cody polish to some of the dialogue. Yeah, I just rewatched that like it's great. Less than a year ago, I think yeah. it is. It holds up so well. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I had no idea. Wow, yeah. you just blew my mind. Right? I knew that. I was like, I bet she doesn't know this. But then, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes you know stuff, you know? So, yeah. Diablo knows how to stay busy. As for what she has planned next, well, one thing we know she wants to do that we would be very excited about is return to Jennifer's body for a sequel. I cannot tell you. When you sent me that article, I, I got know. so excited. Like, even thinking about it, I almost I had tears in my eyes because it's, like, so amazing to me that she could potentially get the chance to, like, revisit that. One, because I love it. And two, because, like, fuck everybody that was an asshole when she first put it out. I want to know where Needy went next. Yes. <laughs> what I want the journey of the kicker. Like, what is she up to? Go. Oh what God. else has she kicked? I need to know. I need to know. <laughs> So yeah. in she was speaking with Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew podcast and she talked about her hopes for the future of the of of Jennifer's body and how she feels about the belated love that it's getting now. She said, "I am not done with Jennifer's body. I just need to find I need a, to find a partner who will believe in it as much as I do and hasn't that really hasn't happened yet. I need someone who believes in it and who has a billion dollars. <laughs> so a billionaires. <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. You know all that money you're saving by not paying your taxes? Just take a tiny portion of that and right. do something good with it. Make a Jennifer's Body sequel, please. She is also, I didn't put this in my notes, but I just read this actually after I had written these, that she has also confirmed that Jennifer's Body and Lisa Frankenstein take place in the same universe. Ooh, okay. Mm. That's cool. Diablo Overs. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so that's obviously her dream project. We're manifesting it like we all need to collectively pull our will to make the universe bend to it and give us a sequel. But in the meantime, she is also working on another horror script. In that same interview, she said, I have an unfinished one kicking around that I need to finish that I that I think is definitely the most straight to horror, like overt gore, scary thing I've ever written. She teases. I'm really proud of the concept. I just have to push myself across the finish line. Ooh. Diablo, this is us. Baby, <laughs> cross the finish line, <laughs> please, please. <laughs> we need that in our life now. Yes we, do. <laughs> yes, we do. Okay, so now you know about these two incredible women. Let's talk about the film that they made together. How the movie came together is kind of, here's a phrase I never thought I would say, a pandemic miracle. <laughs> <laughs> See, sometimes we can't have nice things. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, all right. During this time, Zelda worked on several indie projects, was trying to get them off the ground, and they all fell apart. And the one that finally stuck was Lisa Frankenstein. This was not the movie she thought was going to be her her debut feature film, but here we are. 
And the way that the script made it to her was actually kind of interesting. Diablo Cody's boyfriend was a fr- fan of Zelda short film Shrimp. The one I told you about? the Dominatrix Okay, yeah. One. I was wondering when that was going to come back around. Yes. So he had seen it and he was like, oh no, this is the perfect person to direct this weird, strange little 80s horror comedy throwback that Diablo has written. So he reached out to Zelda and asked her to read the script. But here's the thing. He did not tell Zelda who his girlfriend was. Oh, okay. (laughs) Turns out did not matter. As soon as she read the script, Zelda was in love and responded immediately asking for an introduction to the screenwriter. Oh, that's cool. I like that, that it had nothing to do with name recognition. Right. And talk about the best surprise ever. Like, like, oh, my God, someone gave me this amazing script. Oh, my God, I want to make this movie. And then to find out it's Academy (laughs) Award winner Diablo Cody, (laughs) who's written one of the coolest feminist horror comedies of all time. That is amazing so in that same interview that i referenced earlier from rolling stone diablo recalls the first time that they met (laughs) and you know we keep talking about how cool diablo is the first thing diablo did when she met zelda was dump an entire glass of water in her lap (laughs) (laughs) but she said it was kind of like it would sort of like set the precedent for who the two of them are (laughs) that she was sort of like the screw ball one and zelda kind of had it all under control so <laughs> it's a good sort of like burton ernie energy that worked uh-huh. out well that's so funny yes so okay the film was inspired by the, the john hughes movies of the 80s you know you think about like 16 candles breakfast club and of course weird science oh yeah mm-hmm. we'll be talking about this again very soon hint hint nudge nudge little secret <laughs> tease because that was the movie that Diablo watched growing up and that she had kind of wanted to put her own spin on as she explained I grew up watching these build-a-bitch movies and I always thought where's the version where the girl is creating the ideal ideal male it turns out she was not alone Zelda was also kind of having a similar craving for a movie like the ones that she enjoyed while she was growing up In that same interview, because this was like a a joint interview, obviously, she said, I miss the movies that felt like Beetlejuice, where it had an enormous amount of unhinged, unobstructive, creative, and colorful wildness to it. Now people try, people expect them to be so polished and so speedily edited. I went, okay, what if we put all of that aside and tried to make a genuinely 80s movie? Not a modern retelling of the 80s, but an a- but actual pacing and color and camera mm-hmm. angles of the movies that I loved. And weirdly, nobody stopped me. That's so cool. And she's so right. Like, I get so sick sometimes of all the really fast editing that happens yeah. these days. And it was a brush of fresh air to watch this one. <laughs> agree. Hard agree. So, like, obviously, this collaboration turned out to be a perfect match. I couldn't really find that much about the making of the film. The thing is, is it's not out yet. You know what I mean? All the information that we would normally talk about come from interviews that are under embargo right now as we're recording. So what I could find was that it began filming in New Orleans on August 8th, 2022, and was completed on September 16th. Day after my birthday. (laughs) And is scheduled to drop where it belongs in theaters on February 9th, which should be roughly today, depending on when this drops. (laughs) So what I'm saying is, whatever you're doing right now, go to the theater instead. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, honestly, like Rachel and I have seen this, but we saw it as a screener. And if mm-hmm. you've never watched a screener, it means that your name is across the middle of the screen, essentially. Yeah. yeah. I am 100% going to the theater. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To see this on the big screen. Yeah, I've already like hinted heavily to Matilda if she needs someone to go see this one, but I'm willing to go see (laughs) (laughs) it. Okay, so that is it for my background. Now, Ariel, tell me, let's let's do a non-spoilery synopsis. Tell me about this movie. Okay, yeah, I'm going to do a very quick non-spoilery synopsis because I really want you guys to go see this movie. Yeah. Okay. So Lisa Frankenstein is about a high school student named Lisa. She is a bit of an outcast who's having trouble fitting in in school and sadly at home as well where her dad has remarried. So she now has a new stepmom who doesn't like her all that much and a stepsister (laughs) who luckily does. (laughs) Yeah. She also is a bit of a spooky girl. She likes to hang out in cemeteries and almost has like a crush relationship with uh, one of the dead people that resides in said <laughs> cemetery. <laughs> a freak lightning storm and a tanning bed combine to, res- <laughs> <laughs> to result in a corpse being reanimated. And Lisa and her new Frankenstein's monster go on a journey to find love, replace body parts he is sadly missing, and get a little revenge along the way (laughs) (laughs) yes that is definitely what the movie is about and it's just barely scratching the surface oh yeah Uh, all right i don't think we can hold off any longer we have got to fangirl out let's talk about what we thought about this movie again keeping spoilers very limited we're not going to do a super deep dive i'm just going to go ahead and tease something that's coming should i go ahead and tease it yeah go for it tell them all right cool so we are going to do a women in horror special and we've decided because honestly, this movie deserves like a deeper sort of, like I said, deeper dive into its themes and, you know, it's place sort of in this subgenre of like building a mate that we are going to be joined by some of our favorite ladies. Matilda's going to be joining us. And then also Caitlin from plug it up and our friend Elizabeth are going to be joining us to discuss not only Lisa Frankenstein, but weird science and how this movie is a massive corrective (laughs) to an 80s trope while still maintaining some 80s integrity. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. That should be coming out very early in March. So keep your, if you're not a subscriber and you're here for some reason, trust me, you want to subscribe because this there's going to be some smart, smart ladies and also me talking about this <laughs> and it's going to be a blast. You're too much. <laughs> All right. So I think we've tipped our hand a little bit. We did enjoy this film, but yeah. let's talk about why we enjoyed this film so much. <laughs> Do you want to go yeah. first or would you like me to? Sure, I can go first. Go um, like Rachel said, I'm going to keep my thoughts somewhat brief because we are going to go into this in great detail later. But uh yeah, I, I love this movie. I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit nervous going into it just because sometimes when you build up filmmakers or writers in your head, they yeah. can let you down. And this yeah. absolutely did not. Like the second you and I both finished watching it, we were DMing each other like, 
I think this is my new favorite movie. Yeah. <laughs> you were like, is Lisa Frankenstein my entire personality now? <laughs> yes, it actually is. <laughs> and it's an improvement for me. <laughs> so I already knew like the second it was over that it was going on my top 10 list and that something yeah. is going to have to be really amazing, <sighs> honestly, to bump it yeah. off the number one spot because yeah. that's where it is right now. I, this movie is so much fun. It is so charming. This movie looks amazing. Like just the way that the house looks alone is so great. Like the way that they captured the Mm -hmm. 80s is so impressive. And um, there's something like really refreshing. What's that? It said it's so peach. It is. It's so peach. (laughs) But there's something kind of refreshing about having this like super girly version of the 80s. I just, I love it so much. And Stepmom, like, does not change anything about this house when the family moves in with her. (laughs) so funny. The fashion is amazing. I'm going to let Rachel talk about that because she knows more about it. But it's so good. I loved the relationship between her and her sister Taffy. It goes against Mm -hmm. a lot of the tropes, especially that you see in 80s movies around, like, stepsisters Mm -hmm. in a way that I found surprising and, like, heartwarming. I love the way that this movie handles sex and sexuality. Lisa is like very vocal about what she wants and what she needs and she goes after it. And Mm -hmm. that's really amazing, especially because, I mean, we'll be talking about this, I'm sure, in our longer episode. But though, like comparing that to some of the movies that from the 80s that are being referenced, it's like such a. A stark departure, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Catherine Newton is so great as Lisa. She is charming. She is quirky. I love watching her evolution throughout the film, mm-hmm. uh, where she starts as sort of this more meek, nervous, like outcast to where she is in the end is like so amazing. I love that. Uh, Cole Sprouse, who I've only really ever seen in Riverdale because I'm too old to have watched him on the Disney Channel. Um, He has almost no lines in this movie. He's pretty much nonverbal for most of the film, but he's great in it. Like, I don't know how you can be so charming and say nothing, but he completely pulls it off. It's it's awesome. I don't know. This movie is fun. It's smart. It has so many great things to say. So many awesome themes. It's super feminist. I love it. It's so good. It's mm-hmm. so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is my number one movie of the year. I don't think yeah. it, I don't think that it's bumpable. I actually don't think it's bumpable because it made me feel the way a movie has not made me feel in I don't know how long, mm-hmm. De- like a, a decade at yeah. least. Like it, it's, I wrote this is going to be hard to beat, but I think it's actually impossible to beat because it is one of those handful of movie moments that you have in a lifetime that you had a lot of as a kid, right? Like, because you hadn't seen everything. And so it's something that's so, so rare to conjure up those same feelings that I think even if there are incredible movies this year, they're not going to be able to beat this one for me personally. It's just pure joy on every level. It's cool. It's funny. It's like you said, incredibly feminist, but it's also subversive and just a tiny bit mean and it mm-hmm. took me back to those feelings when baby Rachel watched films like Beetlejuice or The Heathers. Oh, yeah. 
Yes. But absolutely. also, like, at the same time, though, it's not just nostalgia because it served the adult Rachel because it took all of these core ideas about finding yourself, behaving badly, following your heart, having a sexual awakening, but putting them, like, putting them, like, effortlessly through a modern prison. Like, it does, there are times where you, like, you know, you appreciate the politics of something. And so even though it's a little heavy handed, you're like, yeah. oh, you know, like it's with good intent, you know, it's not perfect, but yeah, you know, like, yeah, I'm going to give it a pass unnecessary because it's completely perfectly effortlessly done, you know, despite being about grief and loneliness and bullying and sexual assault, there is a lightness and a joy and airiness that allows you to kind of take in these ideas recognize them see yourself reflected to some degree and be like yes girl i see you without ever feeling punishing or heavy or like it's such a reversal from the oppressive takeover of horror by the themes of grief yeah grief is present in this like there is a background story that is absolutely grief and lisa is shaped by it but it allows us to to explore those ideas without it being so oppressively the source of the horror. It's, it's cathartic. It's absurdist. It's incredibly sweet in places and it's fucking funny as shit. <laughs> it really is. Diablo Cody's dialogue and that like whisper of darkness throughout mm-hmm. everything. Plus Zelda's understanding of comedic timing and the way that she directed these actors like Catherine Newton and Cole Sprouse have incredible comedic timing. Like you talk about Cole Sprouse's, you know, his creature role, like not having a lot to say doesn't matter. No, not at all. His physical, like his like almost Buster Keaton-esque physical comedy in (laughs) this requires no dialogue. He's so charming, so lovable, so funny. And Catherine Newton is, I'm upset. Like if I had seen this when I was 12, I would have lost my mind. Her style evolution as like bad girl goth is like a hundred percent my dream. There's like, she's the era of Madonna that I was most obsessed with, like the, you know, um, desperately seeking Susan mm, meets, yeah. meets the craft meets Heather's like she is, Oh, everything in this, the movie looks incredible. Love the color scheme. Love the set decor, the styling Carla Gugino, who plays the mother. Like we get into her costuming. I'm not going to spoil it here because you got to hear it in the interview. It is so perfect. Like the dynasty meets monster. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just, I don't know. It's just fantastic and full of characters that are, that I love in a way that is just like utterly uncynical. You know what I mean? I don't oh, know. Yeah. I, yeah. I think, I think, I think it, it, the commitment to making it 80s, an 80s movie in the way that Zelda talked about, like really not doing an homage, but making an, an 80s movie today that there, there was some magic to that formula that just feels instantly cozy and correct. But the problem is when you revisit them now, that's still present, but they also a lot of times have not aged well. Right. In terms of their language, like, you know, Monster Squad is dropping the F-bombs and I'm talking about the bad one. Mm-hmm. 16 um, Candles. Yeah. 16 Candles, racist as 
fuck. Oh, and, yeah. And so rapey. So <laughs> yeah. rapey. You know, but there is something about the formula, though, yeah. that feels cozy. And to get that, there's always the cost. You get the nostalgia, but there's always the cost. This movie <laughs> manages to give it all to you. All those fuzzy feelings you had watching a John Hughes movie, including the aspirational outsider teen girl, the fairy tale romance, all of that. But it's still really thoughtful, incisive, cathartic gender politics. And so you kind of get everything you want, whether, you know, whether it be like the romantic elements or the way it deals with sexual assault or the dynamics between the two main girls. It's just rooted in sort of our thinking today without ever feeling like it's pointing at itself for doing it. It's just like a, it is a, it's almost utopian. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just needed and wanted this movie so badly and I just never saw that coming. And so to me, this movie is perfection. 10 out of 10, no notes. I love it unreservedly. And if I hear people critiquing it, I'm just like normally I'm like it's subjective but like you're just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, if I if it's not clear, my recommendation is go to the theater. See this in the theater. Pay full don't even matinee it. Go during prime hours. <laughs> Give your money to the, this movie. It deserves it. It has earned your ticket price. It has earned that popcorn at a, and that $8 soda. Like it is worthy of that. You yeah. will have a great time. Yeah, you will. All right. Enough fangirling. Let's fangirl to their faces. <laughs> <laughs> we sure did, too. <laughs> we sure. Like, I, I I, warned them. I was like, before we even started recording, I was like, I'm just going to tell you guys right now. Like, I have no chill. I'm not going to be cool at all. <laughs> I'm and I'm not going to pretend. <laughs> like, I loved your movie so much. And I'm so excited to talk to you. And I, like, can't even pretend like I'm not. Those things are not my reality. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, everybody prepare to be disgusted by how much fangirling we do. But you know what? I stand behind every single word. Here's our interview with Zelda and Diablo. So. Zelda, Diablo, we are so excited to have you here. We are so excited to talk about your film. Ever since the minute we first heard about it, we have been looking forward to it, really excited about it. And I have to say, you did not let us down. As I said before we started recording, I feel like you guys have crafted a modern classic. Like I think about myself when I saw movies like Clueless or Jennifer's Body and how they were like, both paradigm shifting and also like feeling so incredibly seen. And I, it's been a very, very long time since I felt that way about this movie, a movie. And I felt this way when I saw it, that being said, I'm curious how both of you are feeling now that it's about to be seen by a huge audience. Are you nervous? Are you excited? What, what expectations do you have for the next, you know, next stage of this? Well, I've been, I've been a clown in this rodeo for quite some time now. And I have, I have seen, I have, you know, been through the movie release process many times and it's always a little nerve wracking, but at the same time, it's like, we've, we've created something that we're proud of. We're excited about it. I love this movie and I'm obviously hoping people will embrace it. Um, but I'm, I'm generally pretty Zen. I by am this not. Because <laughs> because this is my first and it's a very interesting unexpected first and like 
there's there's many layers to the stress of this for me, but I do think it will be a relief when I when people can finally see it. Because especially, I mean, Diablo has sat with it the longest, obviously, in writing it. Mm-hmm. But second to her is is me. Because <laughs> the actors, when they finish acting, they're like, and I go off and I do other things. And I'm like, I've been sitting with this now for <laughs> a long time. And you're, you kind of do feel that nerves of the rest of the world getting to see it soon. But I hope, I hope that will finally feel like the release. And then you're like, and we're good. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine like also after it's over, like there's, so, you spend so much time in this world. I, I, I would imagine there's going to be some sort of mourning process or like, you know, letting go that's going to be interesting or challenging. I don't know. That's just my guess. Oh yeah. There's definitely going to be like an emotional letdown feeling after, uh, after this all wraps up, I, I just, I know that from experience and I've also grown very attached to Lisa and Same. the creature. So it's uh yeah, that's a little, that's a little bit emotional for sure. Yeah. Well, you both created such amazing characters. I'm so excited for people to see it. Cause I think they're going to love it as much as we did. You know, one of the things that we love the most too, was the way this movie looks. It looks so fantastic. And that pink and teal <laughs> color scheme is like perfection. <laughs> The interior design is amazing. All of the fashion, like Lisa reminded us a lot of like Cindy Lauper meets like Lydia Dietz. And it was just like iconic. I feel like her outfits are going to be remembered for a very long time. And so I'm wondering, Zelda, first, how did you go about creating this sort of hyper femme version of the 80s? And then Diablo, was that what you had envisioned when you had written the script? Well, I feel like she should start because genuinely it did start with the script. There's a lot of great like descriptions in there that I ran with. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I put some of that in there for sure. And I had always intended to set this in the 80s because, like, truly, how else are you going to reanimate a man with a tanning bed um, <laughs> That's true. and have it be have it be incredibly plausible and realistic, right? Um, <laughs> but, the, uh, you know, I'm, I don't direct and I'm not a super visual person. So for me, it was like I had an abstract idea of what kind of femme 80s phantasmagoria I wanted to be contained in the world of this film but zelda is the one who really carried this vision forward and and made it happen like i watched the movie and i'm just like astonished the the one that really set the ball rolling was her description of the lisa taffy kind of bathroom between their rooms so that had i remember that having a lot of like the seashell towels and the and the shaped soaps and the things so we just mark mark and i ran from there (laughs) and a lot of the outfits um megan and i discussed kind of her transformation as well from a more kind of meek and introverted version into the like severe extroversion but funny enough a lot of lisa's more iconic outfits i think are megan's from when she was in high school Oh my gosh, so that's we had a lot of fun exploring that's her so own cool. stuff too. Ugh. Although yeah. fun thing that yeah. I I like to talk about because it makes me laugh with Carla's outfits, I dressed her like a poison dart frog. So the <laughs> colors are based upon things that are venomous, but like cute in the animal kingdom. Yes. <laughs> that's so clever. It's like Dynasty and that. poison frog had a baby. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. The other thing, that really stood out to me and that we loved so much was the way that this film actually handles sexuality. Um, Like there's a vibrator bit that is hilarious. I died. Um, But what I appreciated is that Lisa, you know, she expresses her desires. She talks about what she wants. um, 
And there isn't a lot of judgment around it. And I feel like we don't, to this day, we still don't see it. But I'm curious if it was important to you to frame sexuality in the way that you did while referencing 80s movies, which so often like slut shamed or made women's sexuality the butt of the joke. Well, I mean, it was the really the whole motivation behind this movie was to create a female gaze story where, you know, I'm not saying every woman's ideal partner is a Victorian <laughs> man who can only listen, but it sounded very appealing to me. And even just, you know, visually as the creature sort of morphs into a hot guy, we get, you know, more and more of that, that female gaze, that female desire, you know, her being able to just like receive pleasure in, in that scene that they have together. Like that was all really important to me. Um, and also the idea of her being able to kind of reclaim her sexuality by, taking the hand from the guy who assaulted her and sewing it onto mm -hmm. someone who would never do that. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, th those are, those are fun themes to play with. It's very cathartic for it's me. It's very cathartic to watch as well, I have to say. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and how about you, Zelda, when you were approaching those scenes, you know, how, how what kind of conversations did you have with Catherine or, and, and Cole? Quite a few. Um, and that was also including Liza and Henry, mm. because obviously there's that bit That's with true. Taffy and Michael at the end true. too. Um, right. You know, in any role that approaches any form of sexuality, particularly comedically, you want to make sure everyone's comfortable. So there were certainly the chats about what would and wouldn't be done and what would and wouldn't be shown. And uh, we had a really wonderful um, intimacy coordinator on set. And truthfully, also, because these are all people who became really close friends or who were already close friends, there was an enormous amount of laughter because laughter is a release during any of these moments. So <laughs> I had a blast in guiding everyone through kind of finding the humor in what is ultimately, especially between, you know, Lisa and Creature, uh, like exploration of young love and sexuality and consent mm -hmm. um, without also showing it too much on screen. It is funny because actually the scene you're talking about, the vibrator one used to go a bit further. You never saw anything, but it used to go further. And then we we reeled it back a bit because of the PG-13. But it was ultimately the same <laughs> yeah. scene um, tonally. So it's it was interesting for me too, because I don't particularly, I know people complain about this with the current generation of moviegoers. I'm a little with them. I don't particularly like explicit sex being shown on screen. Um, it's a bit like looking at your monster too long in a horror film. I think after a while, <laughs> you start going like, well, I didn't need to see all of that. Um, so I'm glad in this one I could make it a, a bit uh, not explicit. I could kind of remove that from it and give it a sweetness, even if it is about that in the long run. Um, I think it allows you also to look at to young girls who are curious about this without like traumatizing them with it. Um, so that sure. was important too. There was a lot of discussions about that and like how to how to keep it on that fine line. Yeah. That's why there's also an animated sequence yeah. over the <laughs> over the sex scene <laughs> instead too. It's very it was a clever way to handle that. Yeah. And I, I love that you talked about consent in here without um making it like a 
a bunch of dialogue that really like dives into it, which can get like boring and a little awkward. I think it was handled so well. Well, he can't say stuff out loud and you can still seek nonverbal yeah. consent. Yeah. Um, I have friends that are of, of different, um, I don't know how you, it's not differently able that the current, the current way of saying that they essentially can't consent verbally, but they know how to do nonverbal. So this is very true with creature as well. I, I say all of this while also knowing that they definitely murder people who are not consenting to being murdered. So like there is a lot of gray area. That's a little problematic. I also, I kind of feel like Lisa and creature, even though this isn't ever like explicitly stated in the movie or ever really by us actually but i feel like there's a little bit of telepathy going mm -hmm. on there especially toward the end mm -hmm. like it seems like she can really read his his vibes and and yeah. what he's yeah. trying I to mean, convey it feels to like there's a real connection there between the two of them so that absolutely makes sense to me yeah now i really loved seeing this kind of like gender swapped version of um like weird science or edward scissorhands these sort of coming of age creation movies what made you both want to kind of tell that story but from the perspective of a teen girl i mean it was direct experience for me because i was the audience for weird science yeah you know, i was mm -hmm. a kid when that movie came out i saw it with all my friends um i was a huge john hughes fan um and in some of his films you know, he had some really kind of interesting, sensitive, nuanced takes on the female experience <laughs> and weird science. <laughs> uh, not so much. Uh, it's this, yeah. You know, these two <laughs> dudes creating the perfect woman. And uh, she turns out to be pretty cool, actually, Lisa. So she's the namesake for this movie. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, watching that, I I enjoyed it, but I couldn't help but think to myself, like, why do the guys get to do this? Like, what is I, I would what is the the gender flipped version of this? What would it look like, and who would she create? For me as well. I mean, one of the things I do seek out as I've now gotten more into this, and over the last ten years, learning to direct and being a part of this side of the camera, a lot of what I respond to tends to be the kind of stuff that a I I would watch. <laughs> I don't know why I would want to direct something I wouldn't watch. But B, that that I think young people that are similar in taste to me also aren't getting right now. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of an embarrassment of riches growing up in a time where we got all of these Tim Burton movies and we got all of these things that felt like what you were even saying with Clueless and things like that. And there's more movies being made now than ever before. But I still feel like there are gaps in how they especially approach young women and young people, young queer people, you know, they're not getting the comedies we used to get and they're not getting the stuff like rom-coms as well. Yeah. They're not kind of having anything that tells them to believe in love and to love themselves and to, you know, allow yourself to fall in love and to feel big things. So I was very drawn to that uh, for this. And I'm, I hope that that's what I've, what we've managed together and what I managed to portray. We'll see. I mean, as you're speaking, I'm realizing one of the elements that I don't know that I totally put my finger on that made me really connect with it. And it is kind of a sincerity around falling in love, but how it doesn't back burner her own self-love and her own journey. Like she falls in love with herself to some degree at the same time as she's falling in love with the creature. And I, 
I don't know that I had put that together, but I think that is a big part of what keeps like a depth to this movie that I hadn't quite put my finger on. And I really, really love that element. The other thing I think is really great in this is the dynamic actually between her and her sister, Lisa and Taffy. And like, there is a formula that this kind of sets up where you expect Taffy to kind of be a terrible person and for there to be this big like horizontal hostility dynamic between the two of them because like one of them is the outcast, one of them is the like it girl, one of them is the stepsister, like all of these kinds of things um, typically code in a very like toxic kind of dynamic. And instead what we get is this incredibly like sweet dynamic between the two of them, even though it takes Lisa to kind of a while to catch up to that. I'm curious yeah. if you can both talk a little bit about what you're hoping audiences take away from this film about female relationships as well. You know what I mean? In addition to like all the, the male female relationships that we see play out. Well, Zelda and I have said that, you know, to us, the most important relationship in this movie is between oh. Lisa and, and Taffy. And I think the culture has pitted them against each other. So Lisa sees mm -hmm. Taffy as the opposition and she's unable, she has been, Lisa has been brainwashed by society into thinking that Taffy is the enemy because Taffy is the only kind of girl that the culture at that time chooses to recognize as worthy of attention, of love. And so Lisa hates Taffy but what we see from Taffy is that she's actually the only person who's looking out for Lisa. She she wants her to be included. She wants her to come to parties. She wants her to make friends. She wants to find her a boyfriend. She says from the beginning that she wants to have that sister relationship with her. She's not ashamed of her, even though her friends are rude. And I, I think that, like, ultimately Lisa sees that because they have this moment at the end of the movie where Lisa's like, I misjudged you and I love you. And it's like... I, I feel that way. Like, I feel like I grew up hating the popular girls because I, I thought that there wasn't room for me to exist if they did. And now I realize how misguided that was. Like, I should have been <laughs> mad at patriarchy, not yeah, right. You're like, be mad at living in a capitalist society, not women. Yeah, like I, I was, it was really misguided anger, and those were some really nice girls. I love it. <laughs> and there's a really important moment in the scene that she mentioned that was like deeply important to me in that pivotal bit. And to be fair, poor Taffy's going to need a lot of therapy. But that conversation that they have, where she goes, I love you, I'm sorry. Yeah. She never, in the next conversation, and people mishear it, which I find really funny because obviously that's expectation and all of these things. She doesn't say, I love you to creatures. She says, you love me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the person that she out loud gets to tell I love you until the very end when she does give him that letter is Taffy. I think understanding that Taffy arguably even has been in her life longer than Creature and loved her longer than Creature was really important for me to see on screen. And also for the apology, because I do think her acknowledging that Taffy is very hurt by what happened is really important. Um, that's the only person who's hurt she really cares about. She never talks about it with Dale. <laughs> and also, to be fair, Dale seems fine at the end yeah. of the movie, so he's good. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he's already lost two wives yeah. at that point, and he's like, "Fine." 
He does pretty <laughs> pretty chill. He's, he's gonna go to Fuddruckers. It'll be fun. Um, <laughs> but Taffy, I really wanted that moment, and I'm so grateful to Catherine and Liza too because they just brought so much heart to these two kind of discordant girl power people, <laughs> and I loved it so much on screen. Um, that that one is one of the most important moments in the whole movie for me. Yeah, is the the kind of back-to-back moments of love and a woman accepting love, but also giving love to her sister was wonderful to me. Yeah. Yeah. It is a really beautiful moment. It, it's, I mean, there's so many incredible character moments in here and laughs and fun gore. Like there is really, really, truly you two have crafted something incredible together. You have created magic together and we're very grateful for it. I know we're at the end of our time here, so I very quickly just want to ask a question that we ask everyone we, we speak to because we, we focus on women identified creators in the horror space. And we just want to know if you have any advice for women who feel like maybe this is not something that they can do, um, but really want to. I would say seize this moment because particularly this year, it has been finally discovered that female audiences can drive yeah. the success of a movie. And even when I was making Jennifer's Body years ago, there were so many frantic discussions behind the scenes with the studio about how do we get guys to see this? And now that doesn't, we know that doesn't matter anymore. So I would say like my advice is write, write from your heart, write to your audience and don't feel that you need to cater to any sort of commercial sensibility because mm-hmm. I don't think that we need to anymore. I love that. Oh, that's great advice. Love I love that. that. Do you have any like quick bit of advice for women, uh, aspiring women directors? Well, I mean, as with anything, it's going to be hard, but I will say the horror industry is like the most broad, wonderful umbrella and some of the most welcoming audiences in the world. They've always been used to kitchen sink filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I have friends who have made movies for 10 grand that ended up doing incredible. Um, This is the best outlet and in I know for any director. So for any woman that loves horror, do it. Just do, you know, if you're making it with your friends, if you're making a Blair Witch Project kind of movie, if you're making, look at, look at what um, Kyle Ball did with Skinamarink, Mm -hmm. who is, made it for nothing. Made this crazy weird movie that became a dialogue between all these people and he just did it in a home with his friend's kids for like one day of work. Amazing. Like, <laughs> You're right, though. I mean, you can be really inventive in this genre, you know, and I feel and it's also like you said, the audiences are there and they're very loyal. I think it's probably in the horror space is the best place to be starting out as a director. It's probably, you know, better than trying to make a mm-hmm. low budget rom-com. Yeah. And I think I think people underestimate that. I think they think everyone expects a certain sort of polish. They don't. They really don't. As long as you're entertaining, as long as you put heart in stuff, people will be fine, especially horror fans. They're used to rubbery effects. They love like crazy, weird, soapy gore that has bubbles in it. Like just have fun. (laughs) I think they will always be accepting of newcomers that come in because some of the greats in this genre, they were just doing stuff on a wing in a prayer. Look at what George Romero did in creating the zombie lore. Like that man just... (laughs) Ran with it, kind of did it for free and was like, well, shit, now I don't even have the rights protected. Like, I guess everyone can just enjoy this thing. (laughs) I I would love to have a million female peers in horror. I I genuinely would. I think it's such a wonderful world for it. 
Yeah. Oh, we would yes. love to see that. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today and being so generous with your time. And thank you for making a beautiful film. This has been an absolute dream and I cannot wait till the embargo lifts so I can tell everyone to watch it. <laughs> Yay, thank, you. thank you so much. All right. So that was our interview with Zelda and Diablo. Seriously. Career high. Career high. Yeah. I know. It's going to be hard to top that one, frankly. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love chatting with them. It was so much fun. Like the the chemistry was great. They were so funny. I loved how they played off each other. Like you could feel sort of the collaborative spirit of, yeah. of that they have built. And I hope they make more movies together. Right? I know. This was such a home run. It would be very cool to see them do it again. Like what if what if Zelda directed the Jennifer's Body sequel? I'm on board. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, I love yeah. Karen Kusama too, but yeah, that sounds awesome. Yes, you're right. You're right. That's, she does deserve a redemption arc too, like, and get the respect she deserves. There are just too many talented ladies out there. I know. An embarrassment <laughs> of talented ladies, riches. But seriously, it was so much fun hearing all of the like little details. Like, I love things like how. Catherine Newton, some of that was like her wardrobe, yeah. which just makes me be like, damn, that girl is hella cool. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, and I know we've already talked about like the weird science of it all, but I yeah. did enjoy hearing them talk about wanting to tell that kind of a story, but from a teen girl mm-hmm. perspective. I really love that. It's something that I wish I had had when I was a teenager, and I'm so glad I got to see it now. Yeah, I mean, I want to definitely like. I'm looking forward to when uh, our little niece nephew Lydia is old enough to watch this movie. Yeah, I think that's gonna be. This is gonna be the kind of movie that I definitely like because this is the thing I wanted so badly when I was young. So I'm just so excited to exist for like younger girls now because. I just hope everybody starts dressing like Lisa Frankenstein. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like I how guess. I saw Clueless and I was like, I'm buying all the short skirts. <laughs> right. Right. No, I know. It's like I, my stepmom showed me Heathers when I was like in the sixth grade, I think. Oh, wow. And I just remember how like, oh, wow, or maybe I was in seventh grade, but I was very young. And I remember how much it shifted my perspective, you know, mm-hmm. like it was, it, it was such a big moment. And I feel like this could be that kind of a thing for somebody. Yeah. I feel like getting to see a movie like this through the female gaze, which I know was something that was really important yeah. to them, what is really exciting. I also think seeing kind of her sexuality journey, like I think when they're talking about like this versus something like Euphoria, you know, right. I think it's really exciting to get to see a wholesome version that does not sacrifice female desire. Yeah, because Zelda talked about how she's not that interested in showing yeah. like a lot of sex on screen yeah. that she wanted to kind of hold some of that back, which I totally respect that perspective. And I do think it is cool that how much they were able to put in without really showing you much at all. Well, I mean, it centers her desire and her passion yeah. and, and like avoids titillation and keeps the gaze female. I don't know. There's something that is both, like I said, wholesome, but also really progressive about the the way that sexuality is depicted in this. And I think that's super, super exciting, especially considering that they touch on something like the most sort of pervasive kind of sexual assault of just like people not respecting boundaries. Like it never was like a violent situation. It like resolves really quickly, but there is, there is like something so familiar about that and and yet so damaging 
and to kind of get some catharsis around that and the way that it incorporated the way that she reclaimed the hand. I mean, I love all that stuff. I just think that these are two incredibly smart women who are making really incredibly smart films, but in the most fun popcorn way, I really, I just, I really hope this gets the audience the love that it deserves. It's going to break my fucking heart if it doesn't. <laughs> I'm way too invested is, in this. <laughs> I just feel like this one is so much fun. Like this one goes down smoothly, you know? Mm-hmm. But you're not asking people for a lot here. You don't have to go through like an arduous traumatic journey watching yeah. this film. So yeah. I think people are going to love it. And but. I hope they pick up on the more subtle things like yeah. the relationship between Lisa and Taffy, I think is so amazing. Mm-hmm. And hearing the way that that represents, you know, for Diablo, like growing up, hating, hating the Taffies of school in our yeah. school as all of us oddball girls do. Right. But understanding actually as an adult, like, oh no, the enemy is patriarchy. I hope that those sort of subtle, but very powerful messages do resonate. Um, yeah. Because I just, it's one of those things that makes this movie so special. I totally and, agree. And it's an interesting, if you think about this in comparison to Jennifer's body, which so much horizontal hostility in that, you know, like it's yeah. interesting to see, you can see how Diablo as a person has also evolved in the way that she's writing girl, girlhood and girl relationships. Yeah. And, Cause it's exploring a different kind of relationship here. A much less toxic one. <laughs> All right, girl, we're just going to sit here and fangirl, so we yeah. should probably wrap it up. Yes, this movie is in theaters right now. <laughs> Please go see it. Do us a favor and then slide into the DMs or email me and tell me thank you. Thank you for pushing me to go see this movie. It is also my number one movie of the year. <laughs> you can do that at Rachel at ZombieGirls.com over on the Zombie Girls Facebook page or, like I said, the DMs at ZG Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, uh blue sky as of today and threads that's what i'm forgetting we'd love to hear from you uh if you're enjoying the show do us a huge favor and rate and review us on apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your pods if you're looking for something spooky to watch tonight after you have already gone to see lisa frankenstein in the theater then you can check out our (laughs) video on demand and streaming calendar at zombiegirls.com and if you want to support us, we have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash zombie girls. And we have merch at zombiegirls.com forward slash merch. Patreon's the dopest because you get extended episodes, extend, uh, bonus episodes of which we have so many more than we have in the past. You should definitely come check it out. Um, and you get to hang out with us on the Discord, which is the best. All right. So that just leaves our plan for the next episode. Ariel, what are we doing on the next episode of More Deadly? Yeah, so for the next episode of More Deadly, we are going to be reviewing Blood Diner with our good friend Casey from Bloody Good Horror. We are very, very excited about this one. It's going to be a really good time. Yeah, he's so much fun. And that movie is so bonkers. It'll be fun to talk about for sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, Ariel... That just leaves one last thing to do, and that is to take us out. (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of More Deadly Director's Cut. We hope you enjoyed our review and our interview with the amazing Zelda Williams and Diablo Cody. Thank you both so much for giving us your time and answering all of our questions. It was amazing. We hope we didn't make you too uncomfortable by fangirling so, so much. (laughs) All right, everybody, that's going to do it until we're back here next time with Blood Diner. Bye. Bye, everybody. 
Thanks to everyone for listening. And thanks to my co-host, Ariel, who is always willing to come on here and geek out about horror with me. And finally, thanks to the women who make the horror films we love so much. Production on this episode was done by yours truly. Editing was done by Ariel Messman-Rucker. And our theme music is More Deadly by Elizabeth Kyle and Eric Newell.